This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. And thank you for joining us for this third Thursday webinar. My name is Larry Gifford. I was diagnosed with Parkinson's four years ago at the age of 45. I'm a proud member of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council. I am the president and executive director of pdavengers.com. I encourage you to join. And I host the podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's. Today, our panelists will discuss issues that many people actually go through that have Parkinson's. One of them is called off time, and the other is dyskinesia. We'll explain why these problems happen and ways to manage them. Now, the webinar is brought to you with support from Accorda Therapeutics, Amniol Pharmaceuticals, Kiowa Kirin, Neurocrin Biosciences, Synovian Pharmaceuticals, and while their support helps make educational programs possible, their donations do not influence the foundation content, perspective, or panelist selection. If you have a question, <laughs> I'm sure you have a question, you can type it into the Q&A box near the middle of your screen, and the foundation staff and our panelists will try to get to as many of those questions as we can in this hour we have together. We have a lot to get into today, so let's get started by introducing our panelists. Dr. Ashley E. Rawls is a movement disorder specialist uh, and assistant professor of neurology at the University of Florida. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to meet everyone, and I'm glad to be a part of this panel. And Rick Schwartz is a former professional baseball player and sports reporter. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's in the year 2000. Hello, Rick. Good morning. I was very impressed the way you pronounced all those drugs. Very good. Well, you know, you practice a lot of that. <laughs> And we have Brian Roberts, Associate Dean of Communications at Ithaca College. He was diagnosed with PD in 2010 and is also a member of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council. Hello, Bri. Good morning, good afternoon. I'm happy to be here. I'm not as easily impressed as Rick is, just so you know. Um, I, I understand you're, 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 you're cri more critical for sure, yeah, but, but yeah. that's your job. Do better, please. Thank I you. Will, I will. This, it can only get better from here. Uh, <laughs> let's start off with uh, just a sort of uh, finding some definitions to what we're talking about. Dr. Rawls, what is off time? So you may have heard your uh, physician or other people in the community talking about on time versus off time. So I'll start by defining those two. On time is when you feel that your medications for Parkinson's disease are working well and are controlling your symptoms. Off time, um, uh, conversely, is going to be periods of time where your medication feels like it's not working and not controlling your symptoms, and these usually occur between doses. Um, many times, uh, off times are, uh, that we notice are going to be motor symptoms, such as increasing in tremor, increasing in tightness of the body, and also slowness of the body. But sometimes there can be non-motor uh, off times that we can notice, such as increasing anxiety before a dose. Uh, and sometimes people feel very, very fatigued as well. It's just like 
everybody's uh, Parkinson's disease is different. Off times themselves can be different between uh, each individual. Um, so those are things that you want to be able to point out with your physician, and we can talk about that a little bit later. Off well, time can become more common as Parkinson's disease progresses. Oh, so you may not experience that right away, but over the course of time, it'll kick in. Yes. Very yes. good. Uh, uh, just for, for the record, I just took a pill right before this, or two pills. So I, I'm kind of coming off, 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 and back on to on. So if you see me wiggling around, that's what that's about. Um, Brian Roberts, uh, do you experience off time? Yeah. So, you know, for me, uh, I've been diagnosed for about a little over 10 years now, actually coming up to my 11th, uh, 11th year. So the, the dyskinesia and the off times I've noticed more in the past few years. Um, you know, for me though, and like many Parkinson's patients, it's tied to stress and diet and things we know we should uh, we should take care of. And just to lay it out for everyone, I am the worst Parkinson's patient in the world. I, I don't I don't take my medicine on time. I have a very stressful job. I don't sleep. First of all, I'm a Mets fan, so you can imagine my uh, my discomfort in life in general. So, um, you know, I hope to learn a lot of things I should do as well as things I don't do currently. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for being here to represent the other side. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, and Rick, uh, what, what do you do? Uh, how, how does your off time uh, represent itself when uh, when you're off off your meds? Well, right now I'm, I'm pretty much on, you know, I'm not shaking or anything and uh, I haven't taken any pills. Uh, usually around one o'clock Eastern time, that's when I start turning into a pumpkin where, you know, I, I can't move, I can't walk. And so I'm waiting for that. I have my pills here ready to go, but I didn't want to take them too early. But I've had, I've had Parkinson's about 21 years now. And uh, the last few have been an on off thing quite a bit when I'm off. I feel like I'm 105 years old. When I'm on, I feel like I'm 35 years old. And it's just like two different people. Right. Yeah, my, my wife calls it, I, I end up in my my little bubble. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not good yeah. for anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, why does off time happen? And Dr. Rawls kind of explained the, why the ons and the offs happen. Um, you know, hey, Brian, have you talked to your uh, uh, help uh, your, your team about the off times and how you can deal with them? Yeah, I have because, you know, it can really inconvenience me. I have a 10-year-old daughter, you know, and kids don't care whether you're on or off. Better always be on, right? So I want to make sure that I have some a little predictability, uh, you know, in my life when I have to go pick her up from school, something like that. So I did speak with my care team about it. Um, there are there are obviously there are a number of options. The one thing they really emphasize to me though is I need to get more sleep, um, which I, is easy to say, harder to do, but um, that's correlated with the amount of exercise I also get. I play baseball fairly competitively, so it's hard when I go off in like the seventh inning because you know obviously I'm a star player, stud athlete, and oh, I, become, I become Gifford like, if you will, you know, in the seventh inning. Unable to hit anything, so uh, so yeah. For me, again, it's probably about establishing a routine and sticking to it, which you know, easier said than done. Life always kind of happens. Uh, it's very bold of you to 
to uh, pronounce yourself a great baseball player in front of a former professional baseball player. I like, I like the mocks. Yeah, well, especially when he's needed, easy to do. <laughs> hey, Rick, have you talked to your care team about off times? Off times, uh, I'm, I'm the same way. The thing I, I have the most uh, difficulty with, besides having going through it every day, is I never know where it's going to happen. And it, it's, it's always that kind of like, you know, you're always on guard that you're going to inconvenience someone or, you know, it's going to be in a crowded restaurant and I can't walk. There's always that fear. So you, you're, I think my uh, world is shrinking because I take less chances about going out. I, I still go out and have dinner and stuff, but it's just that fear in the back of your mind that, whoops, if I get up and can't walk, I'm going to make a spectacle of myself and, you know, everybody's going to be, I'm not, I'm not afraid of people looking at me. I don't have that, that fear anymore, but just in basic, you don't want to inconvenience people and you don't want to look like a fool. So it's just those two elements. You, the then, world starts shrinking. So, so, yeah, I find that we're scheduling things around my medication and stuff. So we, 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 we don't arrive somewhere when I'm just totally drained and, and off. Uh, so right. if we're going to go to an event or whatever, we try to adjust the medication towards that. We're going to get in a little bit later and, uh, that how we can deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis. But I do want to move on to dyskinesia and explain that. So uh, Dr. Rawls, how would you define dyskinesia? So we spoke briefly about on times and off times. So when we talked about on times, it's when we feel our medications are, are working well. Now, sometimes we can be too on or have our medications working too well and have us have it extra movements because there ends up being from the medications that we take like levodopa there is a large rush of dopamine that is taken up into our into the system and can cause dyskinesias when when we discuss dyskinesias these are going to be somewhat purposeless uh wiggling and almost fidgeting like movements um that vary in severity and time that they occur um usually they do occur after you take a dose um of levodopa um for some of our patients that can occur 15 minutes even 30 minutes afterwards and as the dosage starts to wear off the dopamine starts to be used up by the system and then uh, goes away on its own most of the, uh, many of the patients who just start um, having mild dyskinesias may not even notice that they have these fidgeting or wiggly movements. And if they're not bothersome to the person, does it stop them from doing their daily activities or participating in their life and they're not painful or uncomfortable, then many times we just monitor them. Yeah, and, and I, I think, um, you know, you think of Michael J. Fox, a lot of people with dyskinesia. Um, and and it just, uh, uh, Brian, what what does it feel like to have dyskinesia, Brian? Yeah, it can be very frustrating, you know, uh, like I'm a little dyskinetic now. Um, and, you know, it depends where you're at, too. I'm at a restaurant or something like that, and I'm dyskinetic. And I see little kids looking at me, because little kids are uh, always a bellwether for if you're dyskinetic or not, because if you are, they'll let you know, uh, you know. I start to get self-conscious, and then it kind of kind of builds on itself. So, so that's a challenge with dyskinesia. Um, is sometimes I don't even know I'm dyskinetic. Um, so, what I try to do to uh, to mitigate that is, you know, exercise every day. The exercise really seems to help me control it. The other thing um, is actually my body weight and drug interactions. I was diagnosed with Parkinson's. I was about 190. I got decided to get myself into better shape. 
I'm 160, so I'm 30 pounds lighter. My neurologist was like, you're still taking medicine like you're 190. So if you think that I'm a lot less of a person now, uh, 30 pounds lighter, so you need to dose appropriately. So when I cut back my medicine, my dyskinesia uh, decreased significantly. And it's so obvious, but you know, I just never even considered that. There's a million yeah. variables that can uh, really impact it. Do you get it every day? No, no, I don't. Um, today's been particularly stressful at work. I work at a private college, dealing with COVID, things like that. And I didn't have breakfast or lunch because, again, I'm a terrible Parkinson patient. Oh. You know, um, I also went to bed around 2 a.m. last night. I was doing a lot of work. So it really should be everything I do. You should do the opposite of it, and you'll be happy. Have a good life. Um, but with that said, uh, you know, if I eat lunch, it'll start to dissipate. And maybe it's my body's way of telling me, Roberts, slow down, you know? Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, so you just manage them as they come, but it, it can be very frustrating because you feel like you're in control, but you're not. Um, right. Uh, you, you have a 10-year-old daughter. What does she think of it? Uh, it annoys her, basically, because she's like, Dad, stop moving. I want to watch this movie. Or, Dad, uh, did you hurt your arm throwing? Like that. So sometimes she, she also knows it's linked to, to stress because she knows that done something wrong to be like dad i'm sorry you know for for getting sent home from school something like that because she it's a towel so my poker game has uh <laughs> significantly uh yeah but my emotional uh my emotional openness has increased exponentially uh because i can't hide anything anymore <laughs> uh, so look, there's an upside to yeah, I have a 12-year-old, and when I came back from Japan from the World Parkinson Congress, I had really bad dyskinesia, and, and he, he would sit on my lap, and it would be like a roller coaster for him. Rick, do you get dyskinesia? Yeah, I have dyskinesia. Uh, usually, then, when, I, when I'm uh, on, you know, I, I, I have the dyskinesia quite a bit. And that's the, for me though, it's the least of the worries for me. My big thing is walking. You know, I have trouble when, when it hits, I, I start shuffling, literally shuffling, can't walk. And I'm always, you know, in that point, you just want to stand up and not fall down. And, uh, and my whole, my, I've said for years, I just want to stay out of a wheelchair. That's been my, my incentive, my goal. So the dyskinesia is annoying as hell. I don't like any of that, but you know I can deal with that. It's just the walking that drives me crazy. Do you, do you use walking poles at all? Yes, I do. I use them when I'm out and about. I I, I have them with me. Sometimes I don't need them, but I have them with me. But me when, too. Nothing, yeah, nothing works when, when I get into that shuffle thing. Yeah, it doesn't nothing work except to you know sit down basically. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'll, we'll be taking a walk in the woods, and suddenly my family's uh, a half mile ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, like, it's just amazing yeah. how slow you get. You know, for me, again, for sure. being a former professional athlete, it's a lot of years ago, but all my life I've been pretty active, and this is like crazy for me. You know, to me, it's all it's backwards. Why? I don't feel sorry for myself. I never have really. I just say, why? Why not me? You know, people, everybody has something to deal with, but just well, that yeah. idea of having things that worked all the time. You know playing ball and all that. And now they don't. It's just kind of in my mind to this day at my age, I still say, why? I mean, come on, you can do it. 
And a lot of times I can't. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, we've all been there. We're like, I should be able to do this. Come on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the different people have uh, different experiences when it comes to off times and on times and dyskinesia. Um, you know, if you uh, want to subscribe to the podcast, there's a lot of different uh, podcasts about it. So just look up the Michael J. Fox Foundation podcast, and it's on uh, Apple and Google and Spotify and everywhere. Uh, but there's also some great uh, links in the resource list, so you can check it out there. Uh, doctor, I'd like to know from you, uh, how, how do, uh, what, how, what, when people come in and say they're dyskinetic, what's that conversation like? And, and, and what, what kind of questions do you ask them before you kind of give them advice? So when uh, many of my patients come in, uh, they usually don't tell me that, hey, doc, I'm dyskinetic. They may, uh, many times, they may not notice it. Sometimes the spouse actually says, hey, uh, you know, uh, my loved one is, they seem like they're moving around a lot and they kind of leave it at that. Sometimes I can uh, walk in and I actually see the dyskinesias and then I will ask the patient, uh, when was the last time that you've taken your medication? Oh, I took it about you know, 30 minutes ago and it's clearly obvious that they're having extra movements. Usually I then ask, do you notice, do you notice any extra movements? And many times if the um, dyskinesias are mild or even moderate, the patient may say, no, I feel fine. I have no issues completing tasks. My main issues are being off. So if I see dyskinesias or the, or the patient or family says, yes, you know, they make me uncomfortable. Uh, I feel like they are affecting the quality of my life. I'm having difficulty walking because I'm moving so much or I'm having more weight loss than the and what I and then what I need because I have constant movement and burning of calories. Then we discuss about the medications. Just like was mentioned before, um, usually when we think of dyskinesias, it's because the medication is is overshooting the target that we're looking for. So many times there are weight, there's medication changes that we can discuss, uh, uh, particularly the, the frequency of the dosing or even the type of medication that could be altered. Just but usually if the person themselves uh, doesn't. Feel Feel that there's a problem and it's not stopping them from doing their activities of daily living or not embarrassing or painful to them. Many times we just monitor it over time. And, and when you talk about not hitting its target, we're trying to get dopamine into the substantia Niagara or, or, or synthetic dopamine into the substantia Niagara where those cells are dying. Mm -hmm. But you can't tell the pill to, to, go, to go there. So it's going to the brain and it's dumping the, 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 the levodopa in there. And we can't really control it to just go straight to the substantial Niagara. So it's like a glass of water. You put ice cubes in it, and suddenly it's going to fill up, fill up, and it's going to end up on the counter and someplace else. And that's when we, when it's overflowing out of and not hitting the, the targets, it's got to go somewhere. You got to expound that energy, and so it's, it's, it's this, that. That's where the the movements come from, right? Yes. So um, the, the the whole of. Uh, motor process in the brain is very, very complex, and that the substantia nigra has the dopamine producing cells that help feed into that system. So unfortunately for our patients that do have Parkinson's disease, those cells that 
are, are that are in the substantia nigra that produce dopamine start to die over time and that's when we have movements when we don't want to move like tremor or have stiffness and slowness of the body where we're not moving enough or fluidly enough so what we're trying to do is get back the missing dopamine from the dying cells in the substantia nigra and sometimes that can come in potentially different parts of that pathway and sometimes you can have kind of an overflow where you have a lot of extra movements that can occur that we then um, classify as dyskinesias. So you know it's working. It's just working pretty good. <laughs> and th th there is a very nice threshold that we think of uh, in the middle, where the target, where you have uh, control of your Parkinson's disease symptoms, particularly the motor symptoms of tremor, stiffness, and slowness. Below that, you get off, and you get too much of that um, Parkinsonism, and then above that, you get those extra movements of dyskinesia. So we want to try to stay in that therapeutic range, but over time, as the cells in the in the substantia nigra start to die, it makes it much harder to do that. So you have more motor fluctuations of being off and then suddenly turning on. So that can definitely be an issue that necessitates some changes in medication or a view of what we're doing in that treatment. So for people with Parkinson's, and as, as maybe they, they start to have these uncontrolled movements, what I hear you say is start making notes of when you're taking your pills and when you're having those movements, and that will help you have those discussions with your doctor. So sort of keep a journal. Uh, is it yes. possible to have dyskinesia um, not only when it's coming on, but when it's coming when you're when you're coming off? Yes. So many times. Um, you so as as the disease progresses, it makes it very difficult. There are different fluctuations that can occur multiple times a day. Most of the time, the dyskinesias occur um, shortly after taking a dose. But there have been patients that have had extra wiggling um, movements that can occur before a dose as well. What really helps us out to figure out is if there's too much medication on board or too little, is to keep a motor diary. Um, or a diary of, of the symptoms that you then uh, uh, say that are your off symptoms versus your on symptoms. For the, so the first thing to help with you and your physician and your loved one is to figure out what do I consider my on and what do I consider my off? And then you can take a week's worth of notes of when you take your medications, when you have what you consider your off symptoms, and when you have what you consider your on symptoms. And that way we can see if there's a way to adjust um, the therapy to help combat that issue of the motor fluctuations if possible. Great. Okay, we're going to get into what you can do today to start managing your off times in just a minute. But first, I want to call your attention to PPMI. The foundation's landmark study is now recruiting. Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, also known as PPMI, is the study uh, that's going to change everything about how Parkinson's is diagnosed and treated. It says could here, but I'm just going to say it. It's going to. We're going to make this happen. Uh, PPMI recently launched an online platform open to anyone over the age of 18 living in the United States. It plans to welcome international volunteers soon. Uh, you can take a short survey to get started. Click Get Started in the Take Action box on your screen right now. Learn more about PPMI by clicking this link in the resource list. That link will take you to michaeljfox.org slash PPMI. All right, so Brian admitted that he doesn't track, uh, he doesn't necessarily take his pills on time every day. Um, so doctor, what happens if you don't take your pills on a regular basis? 
So things that we can see in our patient population that have either varying intervals between their doses or intermittently take doses are more likely to have motor fluctuations. Because um, what happens is someone may feel well, it's time to take their dose, they're feeling well, they feel like they don't need to. An hour later, they end up turning off more stiffness, slowness, their tremor, and then they take potentially more of their medication and they go right back on. And now there's dyskinesias and they fall right back off. So uh, one of the things that can be helpful if we're noticing there's significant motor fluctuations um, is to try to keep a similar interval and dose amount throughout the day. Again, everyone is different. So I want to put that into account, but that's one thing that can be helpful. Uh, and Brian, uh, I, want, I want to talk to you here, son. We have these cell phones now where you can set like a bunch of alarms every day. So when you take your first pill, just, you know, however long it's supposed to be between pills, just set an alarm, my friend. Yeah, you know, it's not a bad idea. And the doctor basically described me perfectly. You know, it's me to a T. I go off and then I take more medication. Uh, yeah, so I have an Apple Watch. So I've been meaning to program it to remind me to eat, you know, uh, call my mom, take my medicine. Things are important that you should probably do every day anyway. Yes. Think about it as brushing your teeth in the morning and at night. You just got to do it, at, you know, at the certain intervals. Yeah. Now, um, I, I get that. Maybe next uh, webinar I'll be 100% better at this. I hope so. You, you mentioned you exercise helps you. Is there anything else that you do to manage your off times or dyskinesia? Yeah, you know, I think uh, exercise is the key thing for me, just just having been an athlete my whole life. You know, I think Rick touched upon it. It's hard because your body starts to betray you, right? And you always are able to rely on it. So I try to do varying exercises. I hit baseballs, which for me is also cathartic. So unlike golf, where the harder you hit the ball, you don't know where it's going to go when you hit a baseball hard. It goes hard. So, you know, I enjoy that. But um, for me, I actually, my daughter and I got a virtual reality headset. And I find that's really relaxing. Uh, you can tour the Serengeti or you can kill zombies with a lightsaber. You know, but it, it, it takes me out of my, uh, my teen job and, you know, out of Ithaca. Anyways, and, you know, that, that relaxes to read, listen to music. Uh, and my real secret is um, if I'm really disconnected at night, I need a good laugh. I, uh, I listen to Rodney Dangerfield when he was on the Johnny Carson show. It never fails to crack me up. <laughs> <laughs> a throwback reference. Thank you. I appreciate that. info that you will get here at the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Th throwback Thursday here on the uh, Thursday webinar. <laughs> um, so Rick, what do you do to uh, manage your off times and your on times and your dyskinesia? Well, I try to I try taking my medication at the same time. Some, you know, you, we're not perfect. Some days I forget or miss an hour later, and I'm, I'm taking it. But most times, I, I'm pretty. I think that helps a lot to have the same time. At least there's a pattern there for me. And the other thing I wanted, you know, if you don't mind me bringing this up now, is dystonia. The other side of the dyskinesia coin. I get dystonia more than I get dyskinesia, where I, you know, at times it gets so severe. Once in a while it gets so severe, actually my arm will just go whipping back and, and lock in place, stuff like that. And that hurts. <laughs> yeah. So that's, sure. that's the, I don't think it seems to me that uh, dystonia is not discussed as much as it should be, just because well, it, it's a big part of it. And, uh, you know, it, and I don't think, I don't know. I, 
Doc, you know a lot more than I do, obviously. <laughs> but uh, I'm yeah, where does dystonia uh, fit into this, Doc? So a dystonia, which is an abnormal muscle co-contraction, can occur in multiple places all over the body. So even, there are patients who have cervical dystonia, which is abnormal tilt and turn of their head. Some people have dystonia of the arm with their fingers, and some have it of the leg with their ankle coming in and toes curling down. That's usually what I see mainly in my clinic. So dystonia, surprisingly enough, can be an off or an on symptom, depending on if it's related to the medication. Sometimes our patients end up having dystonia that is, does not change with fluctuations of medications. And for those patients who have abnormal muscle co-contraction of one of their limbs, for I would say greater than 50% of the time that they're awake, many times we will offer them botulinum toxin or what I use, Botox injections to help weaken the muscle so that they won't have this abnormal posture that's causing pain or discomfort. Uh, again, this is a uh, on a case-by-case -case basis and not everyone will get dystonia or significant abnormal muscle co-contraction that stops them from walking or doing their daily activities. But if it does and it's significant enough, you can consider using Botox to weaken the muscle so that you can decrease that dystonia uh, occurring. Uh, but the big thing for us to find out, the first step is, is this actually dystonia? And then uh, where is it occurring? And how much is it bothering you? And then is it reachable uh, with Botox? Right. Uh, what were some of the other medications that you could add to levodopa to help control off time? Yes. Yeah, so sometimes uh, our off times, uh, once you um, add them up throughout the day, are occurring, you know, 15 to 30 minutes prior to a dose. You just need a little bit of a push over the edge. Many times we can use medications like Indacapone or Comtan that can be added into uh, with the medication to help it last a little bit longer, like usually up to 30 to 40 minutes, um, so that you hopefully don't dip down into the off period. Some patients or some people who are already on levodopa uh, or cinnamon may take an extra half tab, either uh, usually crushing it and uh, crush chewing it and swallowing it right before their next dose, and that can sometimes give them enough of a boost to overcome that uh, precipitous drop that can then give them off symptoms. I will preface that, and, or I will give a little uh, cor a corollary with that. Um, if you if you do uh, chew the cinnamon, some people can notice they have more stomach upset because it's such a, uh, a, a strong burst of, 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 of levodopa that's released that can cause stomach upset. Um, and also, if you take a quick uh, intake, you could overshoot and potentially get dyskinesias as well. Um, so that's why you should always you know, keep a motor diary if you can, even briefly, and then talk to your provider. Um, another thing that also can be done are there are longer acting formulations of carbidopa, levodopa. Uh, there is Ritari. There's coming out with a new one we can discuss a little bit later that we think may you know be helpful in, in increasing the length um, and of having both a short acting and a long acting together in a pill in a special formulation um, so that you can have your, your decent kind of kick in uh, immediate release and also an undercurrent of continuous release underneath. That's different than the control release. 
Yes, sir. So controlled release, um, it depends on who you ask about that particular medication, but you guys may have noticed that the carbidopa levodopa or Cinemet CR, the controlled release, is mainly given at nighttime. Some people, and so why would we not give a longer acting medication during the day so I could take it less? Well, it depends. Some people notice that the controlled release will help them be less nauseous during the day than the, in, in the immediate release. However, with the controlled release, it's not as uh, dependable as the immediate release. When people take the immediate release, we, for most people, it is going to start working within half, half an hour or so. The controlled release could be 45 minutes. It could be an hour and a half. Uh, so it's not as reliable. So to make it more reliable for you, we recommend usually taking the immediate release, depending on your uh, your, your physician and, and your, your personal case. And then now tell me about reti retiring again, because I'm trying to understand this is sort of a combination of those two things. Yes, so uh, Ritari is actually carbidopa levodopa. Um, it's a, both an immediate release and a uh, controlled release that are put together in a special formulation, almost like an accordion in the pill itself or, or how it's been described, in which you take the tablet, you have the immediate release so people can not feel like they're going off as much, but then you have the controlled release portion of it, the accordion that they have um, that's laid out in the pill itself afterwards, um, so that you always have this lower level of uh, levodopa in your system to hopefully keep the person from fluctuating as much or feeling the fluctuations as much. Oh, that's, that's really cool. Now, I've heard that if you take orange juice with your pills, it'll help it absorb faster into the brain. Is that true? So that's what people have been saying. If you take a touch of vitamin C with your medications, that it could help it get into your brain a little bit more quickly. I, I myself don't usually recommend that to my patients, but if it works for them, um, I, they can always try that. Now, I, I, I'm, I, don't know, I don't know if we're going to lead into this about the flip side, about other foods with, with the levodopa, but I'll, I'll hand it back to you, sir. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about food. That's my favorite topic. Okay. Uh, Excellent. Food, 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 is not, food and, uh, and the uh, cinnamon or, or, or uh, levodopa, carbidopa, carbidopa, levodopa, they don't mix very well, right? So it the depends protein, on what type protein. of food. So... Yes, especially protein. So when, we when we're talking about uh, levodopa or the dopamine, which is what we want into our brain, it's the active molecule that helps with the signs of Parkinson's disease or the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Um, it's part of a protein building block. Now, when you take your carbidopa levodopa, it is fighting to be taken up into your body with the other proteins that may be in your stomach or in your intestines around that time. Um, so uh, it stands to the reason that if you have a meal that is heavy in proteins like yogurt, meat, beans, the protein that's in that meal can compete with the uptake of the levodopa, and so the medication may not work as well. Many times, so I'm not saying you should not eat your protein because you need you need your protein, particularly if you're uh, moving around a lot or very or and on the flip side, being very stiff and slow and have a lot of muscle breakdown or not able to take in the the calories that you need. So everyone needs the protein. It's just when to take it in relation to the medications. Uh, for my own patients, usually I recommend that they take their carbidopa levodopa. 30 minutes before 
or one hour after a meal, particularly if it's a meal heavy in protein. Um, that way you can give the levodopa a chance to absorb and then still not you know, miss your meal. Now, that being said, I don't recommend, I, I'm not saying you have to overhaul uh, your whole life and your whole eating schedule for uh, taking the uh, carbidopa levodopa or the levodopa portion in, in cinnamon. But one thing that you can do, let's say, for example, your, your dose is due at noon and you're out with friends and family and you want to eat, you can consider eating the, uh, the greens and the salad or the bread first and then the meat portions and beans portions later on in the meal and still just take your, your, your dosage as normal so that you still have a bit of a buffer um, so that you can try to absorb it before you have a heavy protein. That's great. Uh, thank you. I, I'm going to ask a question of the, of the gentleman, and then I'm going to go back to you to talk about DBS. Uh, Brian, yes, have, you, have you considered DBS, uh, deep brain stimulation, uh, to control your uh, your Parkinson's symptoms? Uh, you know, I, I did consider briefly, because honestly, I think I'm a great candidate for uh, I was diagnosed young at 30. Um, you know, the, the challenge that I have with it is where I'm at right now, really impact my day-to-day -day that much and once the virus goes in your body it doesn't come out you know so that kind of alarms me and, you know i always have this weird dream that i get tbs i wake up and like a newsboy comes in because we've cured parkinson with the newspaper you know who brings in a newspaper anywhere anymore for you? regardless of that um your references are very old these days though brian I'm like a Parkinson's version of Ted Lasso. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so for me, it's, um, you know, I think things have to get significantly worse for me to consider it, to be totally honest. What about you, Rick? Have you thought about DBS? Often for the last 10 or 15 years, talked about it on and off. I have doctor friends who tell me I should get it. Years ago, I should have gotten it and still can. But I, I don't know, I have I, I go back and forth, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately because of getting involved with this seminar, uh, that webcast that, uh, you know, I've gone back and forth. But for me, I just feel like I'm kind of a minimalist. I don't think whether that's smart or not, I don't know. But I try to take is just the pills that I need. Uh, I don't take aspirin if I can help it, anything. And I work out, you know, I try to do that. I exercise to me is very important along with sleep. If I get those, I have usually have pretty good days. And in a DBS situation, I've seen both sides of it. I was the board president of the Parkland Association of the Rockies for many years. And, you know, people would call me, as I'm sure they call you and everybody else who has Parkland. Would you talk to my friend? Would you talk to my, my mother or whatever? And, uh, you know, the DBS for me is like, I see these websites. One, one, one frame would be, it's great. It's the best thing I ever did. Then I read another website. I goes, I can't move. I can't talk. And everybody goes, yeah, it's the worst thing I ever did. So it's, it's like in my mind for me, again, just being a, a kind of athletic all my life, I, I do things. I play hard. I box. I, you know, I do that boxing, especially. And, uh, I just feel like if I can just exercise a lot, eat the right way, sleep as much as I can, I don't need to do something to my brain and I'm not afraid of the operation. I've had several surgeries over the years, big ones, but you know, it's just the whole idea of maybe slowing down, not be able, 
not being able to work as hard or whatever. So that's been my uh, mental block against DBS. Okay. I, I kind of want to be bionic though. So I was thinking that might be a quick <laughs> thing. <laughs> but first I have to find my brain. That's been a thing for years. <laughs> you go in there and I can't find my brain. So it's, it's moot. You know, I they can't do the surgery. <laughs> A landmark study that could change the way Parkinson's disease is diagnosed, managed, and treated is recruiting participants now. PPMI, or the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, needs people with and without Parkinson's, especially people age 60 and up who have close relatives living with the disease. Take a short survey today at michaeljfox.org PPMI to see if you're eligible. That's michaeljfox.org slash PPMI. Now, Dr. Rawls, you've heard uh, these two gentlemen and their hesitation, my hesitation with DBS, and I'm in line to be evaluated right now uh, because I think it w- I'm a good candidate for it. My doctor says I'm a good candidate for it. Uh, is I'm afraid of losing my, my the strength of my voice. Uh, so what, what are some of the... Uh, considerations people should take when considering DBS to control you know, their, their Parkinson's symptoms? It's an excellent question. I really appreciate um, hearing everyone's viewpoint on deep brain stimulation. So um, just briefly, just kind of I'll lay the groundwork. So DBS or deep brain stimulation is basically a pacemaker in the chest with the with an extender and a wire going down into the brain that is used to help mitigate the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, mainly the motor symptoms of tremor, of tremor, stiffness, and slowness. So those are the three things that we think about when we talk about using DBS to help. Now, some people have other uh, Parkinson's disease symptoms that are responsive to levodopa, and those could potentially be helped with the deep brain stimulation, but the main one is tremor, stiffness, and slowness, okay? So when does somebody think about um, uh, being evaluated for deep brain stimulation? So it's usually when someone starts to either they have um, are mainly is when they start having motor fluctuations is usually when we start that that conversation uh, when they're having significant off times that are keeping them from doing what they need to do in their daily life or they have significant dyskinesias that are keeping them from walking or embarrassing or stopping them from doing what they want to do um, so we use it to address not just the the general symptoms but also the fluctuations that can occur throughout the day now with deep brain stimulation and uh, in, in our facility where I work, we have a whole dedicated team uh, at our academic institution that's a very involved process. So it's not something that many people end up getting or taking lightly um, over the span and, and the procedures next week. Usually there's a dedicated multidisciplinary team that, that goes through all aspects of um, your Parkinson's disease, deep brain stimulation, um, the cost of it, therapy services, psychiatric and psychological services, so that the person who is considering the operation can get all the information they need to make an informed decision. Um, So it is something that is um, an advanced therapy for our patients with Parkinson's disease, but um, can improve the quality of their life depending on if they're an appropriate candidate for the procedure. It seems to me in recent years, especially in the United States, uh, they seem to be turning to DBS uh, earlier 
in uh, in the progression of the disease that, rather than later, which was more typical, uh, probably five or ten years ago. Uh, is is there a new uh, new research that says that, that it's better to do it earlier? So there is some research out there that does show that um, intervening earlier with deep brain stimulation can help improve um, quality of life for our patients. Because as you guys already know, we don't have anything currently, at least that's FDA approved, that stops, slow down, or reverses disease progression, with the exception of exercise that we found that helps to slow disease progression. Uh, but with deep brain stimulation, it basically is, think of it as a continuous medications that you can alter over time, even though it's a device. However, it doesn't reverse disease progression. So I think of it as a way that we can offer more finely tuned intervention to our patients um, that can help enhance that, that time that they have while they are still um, at, at, at their best functionality. So that's what, what it's for. So Rick's concern that you're going down is not true. Um, well, so it is. So again, I I don't want to make big blanket statements about the. Oh come on, doctors, go ahead. Because, <laughs> hey, <laughs> uh, the reason why is because it really so it depends on one if you're an appropriate motor candidate. So tremor, stiffness, and slowness. It depends on your your overall health as well, um, and also your cognitive function even before you come in. Um, so if someone um, is you know well overall but they're you know either uh, demented at baseline or have a lot of uh, cognitive difficulties then obviously the stress of a brain surgery and putting a device in the brain has an increased risk of our patients having uh thinking pro worsening thinking problems afterwards um so you have to be careful in how you counsel patients and um give them opportunities to get this um, intervention because you want to make sure that they know all the risks of what's going going on. And then Brian, uh, I think you're going to wait till it's more serious. What, what impact will that have for him? So uh, as we continue to age, many, many people, uh, not people who are Parkinson's disease uh, that they have or they don't, uh, can notice some cognitive decline over time. Um, so that's one thing that it's not a <clears throat> complete contraindication to deep brain stimulation, but it does give us pause when we see someone who is, so it's not necessarily the age, but the, the cognitive health of the person. So if someone comes in and they are not really with it and we want to do a deep brain stimulation as a surgery, we can be concerned because given that it is a brain surgery, just anything you could put and break the skull and do, it could cause some more cognitive decline afterwards. So we want to make sure the person is hale and healthy uh, from a thinking perspective before they undergo this procedure. Not saying that people haven't and have had thinking problems, but the risk of thinking problems as you continue to age, even without the procedure increase. So it stands to reason that um, having deep brain stimulation may be more of a, of a risk to your, your, your thinking aspect as you continue to age. And then my concern and, is, my does, it, does DBS always impact your voice? So, it so again, it really depends on uh, which uh, target you're looking for, because uh, there there are different areas in the brain that deep brain stimulation can target based on your symptoms or your main symptom. Um, but but there have been patients where 
um, when we uh, program the deep brain stimulator can notice that their voice is not as strong or has or doesn't have as much um, uh, prosody or, 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 or uh, melody that comes in their voice and again that can be that can be troublesome for for uh, people like you who have a very nice strong voice they may notice that they are not projecting as as, as clearly or strongly or notice the difference with the before and after the device so the good thing about deep brain stimulation is that it is programmable so if that is a big issue we could either uh, change the settings or what some people do is they have two device settings one for moving around and walking and another one for if you're sitting and speaking um, or doing something that involves more of a speech aspect as opposed to a physical motor aspect. So those are things that definitely can be done, but everyone is different. So it really depends on where your lead is placed and then also how you're programmed. Um, I'm guessing, uh, I don't know this for sure, and you can correct me, doctor, but when we're talking about DBS, that's affecting the Parkinson's symptoms. Dyskinesia is not part of that. Yes, so it can be part of that. So our con so consider you have your Parkinson's symptoms. You want to get rid of your stiffness, slowness, and tremor. You take X amount of levodopa, and suddenly you start having large wiggling movements that are dyskinesias, okay? So I'm not saying, think of the deep brain stimulation as another medication besides the levodopa. So most of our patients can come down significantly, 50% or more, on their um, oral uh, uh, Parkinson's medication like the levodopa. So it stands the reason that you usually will not have as significant fluctuations and therefore less dyskinesias if you're having a um, steady, um, if you're having a, 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 a steady, um, uh, yeah, if you're having a, a, a steady steady amplitude or energy going in from the device itself. So it should help with off symptoms and dyskinesia because now you're in that, you're, you're more likely in that therapeutic window. Right. What else can you do to treat the dyskinesia? So things that you can do to treat dyskinesia are going to be, if it's coming from, which it usually is, um, an overabundance of medication, you can decrease the amount of medication that you're taking. Um, and usually the dyskinesias will decrease as well. Again, if you decrease the amount of levodopa that you're taking in, that means you will likely have more stiffness, slowness, and tremor. Um, so that has to be a balance. There are other medications that can be tried for dyskinesias. Uh, one of them is going to be uh, amantadine. Uh, there is a medication that, uh, that is a long-acting, that used to be used for uh, influenza, that now we don't use it anymore for that particular indication because it's because that because the influenza is now resistant to it. But we found that it does help patients that have dyskinesis. Um, another long-acting formulation of it is called Gocovery, which I think was FDA approved in the past couple of years. Um, so that can be helpful in leveling out the amount of wiggling movements that can occur for our patients. Great. Uh, we're going to take some more questions from, from the audience. So if you have a question, just put it in the Q&A box and we'll get to as many of those as we possibly can. Uh, so doctor, you see, like I see Embresia on here. What, when do you use something like Embresia? So with Embresia, you're going to use this when people have sudden offs. So sometimes, um, so when people are off, sometimes they can notice that 
um, they have an increasing difficulty in doing tasks, whereas other people, when they turn off, it's very abrupt and very sudden, um, where they may have a significant increase in their tremor or even stiffness and slowness where they really can't move at all. And as you can imagine, that can be very bothersome. So inresia is actually an inhaled formulation of the levodopa um, that you administer through almost like a um, so with the inresia, uh, someone's uh, taking on an as-needed basis, I believe it's up to four, five times a day, where the person suddenly turns off, they take, um, I believe it's two puffs of the inresia inhaler, and then it begins working as soon as about 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Um, so that can definitely be helpful um, for our patients who uh, it may take a while for them to, for, for, for the oral pill to start working, to just do the inhaler may be helpful. Uh, what, uh, about the, uh, what about the uh, the add-ons to levodopa? What, what, so you take your levodopa, and then you may, may have some inhibitors or something. You know, how do those work? Yeah. So we have different inhibitors. We have the Nurians, and I believe on Gentis is a new one that's on the market that can help decrease off times. There are many different pathways in which levodopa gets taken up into the brain and used. So I'm not going to go into too much of the of the nitty gritty there, but these can also be added on to try to and try to um, decrease the off time of us coming down below our our, our target level of, of dopamine in the brain. Um, so those can definitely be used and, and can help with that. We have some questions from the audience. People are really curious about Duopa, the pump. Uh, what can yes. you tell us about that? When, who, who's a good candidate for that? Okay, excellent. So the uh, Duopa, if you're in the U.S., and Duodopa, if you're um, overseas, is a particular pump that they use that has cartridges that hold a dopamine gel. And so uh, the pump that you, you basically, it is a, a tube that they place um, through the stomach, through your skin and your abdomen, um, and then they hook it up to a pump. And basically what you do is you put the cartridges in and over time it delivers um, a set amount of dopamine gel um, directly into your, a little bit actually a little bit past your stomach, but directly into your stomach. Um, this can really be helpful for our patients who are very brittle and that they have um, very quick fluctuations between on and off, um, where they're off most of the time, they take a tablet of carbidopa, levodopa, and suddenly they're way on it and they're, they're very dyskinetic and they fall right off and have significant significant sudden offs. So usually this, this can be a step before patients go towards deep brain stimulation or DS. Um, they can try to do the duopa. To me, um, it is a, a bit of a large device. And also with the cartridges, they have to be kept cold. Um, that be stored cold. Uh, the good thing about this is that even though it is a surgery, it's not a brain surgery, it's an abdominal surgery. And overnight, or or if, if you want to try, you don't want to have the device hooked up to you, you just cap off the uh, tube, you unhook the device, and then you, you go about your business. But again, during that time, you likely have to take your regular oral medications that you've been taking it. So it's a, it's a nice step for our patients who may not be able to tolerate a brain surgery or prefer for some other reason not to uh, pursue deep brain stimulation. Great. Uh, hey, Brian, what did you learn today? Uh, like my students, I wasn't paying attention. Dr. Rawls is uh, really smart. She knows her stuff. And, you know, I got to get better at 
including myself structure uh, like my idols uh, on this call like rick and larry who are more disciplined than i am so i promise i'll start being a better parkinson's patient so the fox foundation will suspend me from service uh well. yeah. <laughs> oh dear I don't think that's going to happen. You're you're uh, you're 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 too good of a guy. Uh, we do have one question here, Doc. Um, we are. Uh, how do you know if the 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 the, the 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 what you're feeling is from like the medication wearing off or from uh, you know uh, or or it's because of um, the drugs, whether it's from the drugs or it's from the Parkinson's. Like, how do you, how can you differentiate? Is that why you keep the log? So you, that's an excellent question. Sometimes it can be kind of di difficult to figure out, is this just part of my disease or disease progression, or is this a side effect of the medication? Uh, sometimes patients will, will uh, if we're unable to tell and with discussions with your, uh, with your, uh, with your doctor, you're not able to really, uh, really pinpoint it. Sometimes people will do a medication holiday, obviously under the discretion of your provider. Um, and sometimes they will hold their medications and see whether or not uh, what they're feeling is part of the Parkinson's or is it a medication side effect? Because sometimes they can overlap and it can be very difficult to tell. All right, Rick, thank you for being here. Brian, uh, it's always great to see you. Uh, Dr. Rolls, thank you for all that awesome information. We really appreciate it. I do want to acknowledge our sponsors again. Uh, you can see them on your screen. Uh, it's really, uh, and I want to thank the Fox Foundation for inviting me to be a part of this. Uh, this is what a, what a great community we have here. And uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, and again, um, the sharing this time, you know, everybody, you know, everybody's busy. And so for us to spend an hour for all these people to invest an hour Hopefully, they feel like that investment was worthwhile because I think we were able to pass along a lot of great information today. Uh, we'll be sending along a link to the webinar on demand to listen again or to share as you'd like, and uh, we hope you found it helpful. Uh, and I hope you have a great day, and be sure to set those alarms for your medication. See you, everybody. Thank you. Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.